probably noticed, haven't you, that um, we live in a world that is, uh, that is full of reports and assessments. Have you noticed that? I'm, I'm guessing most of us had school reports when, when we were kids. I, I know I was terrified every time I had one. I kind of give them to the teacher and told to kind of take it back to my parents, which I did with, with kind of terror because I knew what was probably going to be said of it, of me in, inside of it. So it was kind of a bit of a terrifying experience. But you kind of think, you know, well, when I've left school behind and, you know, I, 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 you know, I go on to either university or college or work or, or whatever comes next, and you think reports maybe might be a thing of the past, don't you? But then you get things like annual appraisals. Or you get things like personal evaluations. And and then there's all the other reports, isn't there? Like Ofsted evaluations or, or quality audits or health and safety inspections or whatever it is. And then there's all the government reports as well that tell us, you know, uh, uh, employment's going down but cost of living is going up or NHS is in decline but knife crime is on the increase. There's a kind of endless stream, aren't there, of reports and, and assessments and so on. In other words, they're here to stay, aren't they? They don't end when you stop getting school reports. They're, they're, they're here to stay. They're part and parcel of life uh, for us all. And I don't know about you, but as I read through chapters 2 and 3 of uh, Revelation there, they've got the feel about them of a report or an assessment, haven't they? It's like Jesus is offsteading these seven churches here. He's he's assessing each one in turn, and and then he's reporting on his findings. I think that's what's going on um, in in these two chapters. If if you've been here uh, last week, you'll know we we started a new series in the book of Revelation last week where where we discover that John is he's writing the letter um, to some churches in what is now sort of modern-day Turkey, but churches who were facing the threats and the seductions of the dominant culture that was around them. Specifically, it was persecution, it was false teaching, and it was compromise with the world, which all sounds strangely familiar, doesn't it? Um, And he's writing with a message from God to the churches to urge them to stand firm in the face of the persecution, to stand against the false teaching, and to stand up for Christ in the world, even when that means going against the cultural flow. Why? Because God is sovereign. He is totally in control and in charge of human history. And he's victorious. The great battle of human history is not Armageddon in the future. It's the cross and the resurrection in the past where Christ has paid for our sin and conquered Satan and the forces of evil already. Which means that his people are secure. We are spiritually safe no matter what. And we're looking forward to that day when we meet God face to face. That's why he's writing, which means that Revelation is not particularly a, you know, it's not so much a, a book that looks forward to that day. Uh, sorry, it's, it's, um, it's not a book that's kind of a, a, a timetable of events before Jesus returns. I, I don't think that's the right way to read Revelation, but rather it's a book for the here and now. It's a picture of life between the first and the second comings of Jesus. It shows us what to expect in our age and in every age until Christ returns. And it's there to urge us to keep going and keep trusting in the Lord Jesus because he is the victorious lamb, as we'll see as the book progresses. 
But before we get to the kind of the main bulk, the visions uh, of, of Revelation from, from chapter 4 onwards, we get this kind of report, or this, this series of reports, if you like, from the risen Lord Jesus, where he addresses these seven local churches with a kind of a personal message for each one. And the reason for him doing that, I think is pretty straightforward, actually. It's to ground the book in the real world. See, if we were to simply skip over chapters 2 and 3 and go straight to the amazing visions of, of chapter 4 and, and the rest of the book, we might be tempted to think that this, this is a book with no real application to us, you know, kind of ordinary Christians in, in today's world. It's too lofty, you know, it's too otherworldly to be of practical help in the here and now of, of my life. But that isn't the case. And, and these chapters 2 and 3 are their real words written to real people in real churches facing the real issues of the threats and seductions of the culture around them. But they're not just messages for the real world of then, but they're messages for the real world of now as well. They're written for us. Um, you, you'll notice that seven churches are being written to here, even though there were way more than seven churches in, in um, uh, Turkey, Asia Minor at the time. And that's because their significance in the number seven, numbers are very often symbolic um, in the scriptures, and the number seven is frequently used to represent the totality of something or the completion, the perfection of something. So think about creation uh, of the world, for example, in seven days. It's, it's a number to represent totality, perfection, completion. In other words, we're almost certainly meant to view these seven churches as representing the totality of the church. In other words, all churches in all places at all times. But then also notice that at the end of each of the seven messages, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So not to the church, that individual church, but to the churches. In other words, Jesus is giving us these messages, not just for these seven churches in the first century, but actually for all churches at all times until the Lord, until the Lord returns. So these are Christ's report on our churches today, not simply on those churches then. You know, with, with, his, with his blazing eyes that penetrate where others can't, chapter 1, verse 14, the glorious, risen, reigning Lord Jesus that we met in chapter 1, the one who is Lord of the church, such that he has the right to say to us what needs to be said, he is giving us his report on his churches today. Um, we've said about this series that we're not kind of drilling down into all the details, uh, as it were, um, uh, and going slowly through the book, but it's kind of a, a top-level look at the big themes of Revelation. But I think as we go through these two chapters this morning, I think you can see four themes, four big themes, that crop up in one or more of these seven churches. So we're going to have a look at those together. And, and I think the thing is to ask ourselves as we go through if we are listening to what the Spirit is saying to us through his word here. Firstly, have a look with me at Ephesus. Let's go to Ephesus in chapter 2 and, and verses 1 to 7. A church which is committed but cold. Okay, it's worth noting um, just at the beginning that each of these seven messages follows the same basic structure. Um, do you remember from last week? In fact, we, we read it at the beginning this week as well. Do you remember from last week, chapter 1 includes this, this glorious kind of self-description of Christ in verses 12 to 
to 20 that, that I read at the beginning of the service. And, and each of these seven messages in chapters 2 and 3, it starts by picking up on a part of that description of Christ in chapter 1. And in this first church, Ephesus, you see it's addressed by Jesus as the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the lampstands. So he's picking up on the description of Jesus in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1, isn't he? He's letting them know that this message is from the risen Lord who is with his church and knows what's going on. And and that that happens in, in all of them. And then he goes on to tell them something that they're doing well, to expose something that they're doing wrong, and then to show them how they need to act. That's the basic structure in each case. So we're looking for the praise, the problem, and the point, if if you like. So where is the praise here? What's good about this church in Ephesus? Actually, lots is good, uh, isn't it? He says in verse 2 that he knows their works, their toil, and their patient perseverance. So this is not a lazy church. There's, There's lots going on. They've probably got a food bank, you know, a mums and toddlers group. They're probably running Christianity Explored courses and and all that kind of stuff. And and also, look, verse 2, they're they're doctrinally pretty sharp as well. Uh, Verse 2 mentions that they tested some teachers and found them to be false. So so these guys are are rightly careful about who they let teach in their pulpit or in their growth groups or in their children's work and so on. They've got a reputation for sound doctrine. Hence, they they won't have anything to do with the Nicolaitans in in verse 6, look, who appear to be both unbiblical in their doctrine and ungodly in their behavior, such that Christ hated them too, we read. So these guys, they won't compromise on their their doctrinal purity. They've endured hardship for Christ's name, verse 3, and and haven't grown weary. Do you you see what kind of a church this is? Hardworking? Tick. You know, biblically sound? Tick. Uh, Willing to suffer? Tick is actually very impressive, isn't it? And Christ commends them for this. It's good to be a church like this. But what is the Ephesus church not doing well? What's the problem with the church? Actually, it's a serious problem, isn't it? You see it in verse 4. Yet I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Or I think the NIV says, you've forsaken your first love. What a crushing blow. That must have been to them, don't you think? I'm, I'm guessing these guys were pretty chuffed with themselves about their, their good points. But here, Jesus is saying, actually, there's something big that's missing, which is their love for the Lord. See, in the Bible, the most important thing a Christian should have is love for the Lord. The Lord should be the Christian's first love. So it's good that the church is concerned to work hard and be doctrinally sound and be prepared to suffer for the gospel. But actually, the heart is missing here. Their love for God has grown cold, you see? Um, It's interesting, at the end of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church in in Ephesus chapter 6, verse 24, I think it's the last verse in in the letter, Paul says to them as he signs off, he says, grace be with all who love the Lord Jesus with a love incorruptible or with an undying love. But actually, what appears to happen by the time we get here, by the time Jesus pens this message, is that the church has forgotten the love that they had for him. They're cold-hearted. You know, they're sound as a pound. They're eager as beavers. But they're completely lacking in love. 
And of course, friends, when we don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, well, that affects the way we love others too, doesn't it? Both, both Christians and non-Christians. Because it's our love for God that's the bedrock of all of our love. And this church had forsaken it, such that they were keen and committed on the outside, but just kind of cold and loveless on the inside. Verse 5 says they've fallen a long way from where they were. And they need to repent and start doing the things they did at first. In other words, they need to rekindle the passion and the love for the Lord that drove all of that biblical faithfulness, all of that hard work, all of that endurance through suffering in the first place. Because otherwise, verse 5, Jesus will remove the lampstand. In other words, they will cease to be a church. Jesus will close them down. Right? Now, the building might still be open, of course. There might even be some services taking place. But the spirit will have departed. You know, even if the outward trappings of the church are still there, they'll be spiritually dead. So it's a grave warning, actually, isn't it? That a cold church will very quickly become a dead church. But if God's people repent and rekindle that first love, then instead of spiritual death, well, there's a way back to spiritual life, to taste the fruit of the tree of life, verse 7. And to know eternity in the paradise of God. See? So what, what's the point here? I actually think this is quite a challenge, a big challenge for churches like ours. Don't you reckon? Because the Ephesian church here, actually in lots of ways, sounds a lot like our church to me. We're, we're passionate about the truth, aren't we? We're an active church. We've got lots going on for a, a church of our size. And that's a good thing. You know, Christ, Christ commends that. But friends, it's really important for us to ask ourselves, isn't it? Where is our heart? Are we still in love with the Lord Jesus? Like the first day we met him. Or have we lost that first love? You know, are we growing in our love for him each day? Or, Or do we find our relationship with him cooling in its fervency? What motivates our faithfulness to his word or our commitment and our service to him, our suffering. Is it love or is it just duty? Do we need to repent here and rekindle that love? Let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, Come with me now, if you would, to Smyrna. Um, See Smyrna in... um, chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, and and also Philadelphia, which we didn't read, but it's in chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. I'll I'll kind of take us there as we we get there. But I think there's two churches here that are tough but tired. Um, And and let's ask the same questions. Where's the praise? Uh, What's the problem? What's the point? And, And we can see the praise actually readily enough, can't we? Because there's loads of praise. Actually, in fact, he's got nothing really bad to say about the church in Smyrna, Um, and and Philadelphia at all for example Smyrna look at chapter 2 verse 9 it's going through tribulation and poverty and yet spiritually speaking they are rich he says now in in uh, Roman cities of the time especially in this region actually worship of the Roman emperor was a thing in fact it was compulsory you had to to actually bow down to a statue of the Roman emperor make a sacrifice to him and Smyrna was kind of a center of emperor worship 
And to compound the problem, there were lots of trades uh, uh, that, that people were employed in, and, and you would have a, a, a trade guild. You know, it's a bit like a trade union, I suppose, today. So you'd have like a leather workers' guild, you'd have a gold workers' guild, and, and so on. And if you wanted anything like success in your business, then you had to be a part of the guilds. But the flip side of that was that the trade guilds were also the places where the pagan gods, including the emperor, would be worshipped. So as a Christian, you're kind of left with the prospect of either joining in with the pagan worship and so compromising your faith, or opting out and and, and facing persecution and financial hardship, because if you weren't in a guild, you wouldn't get a lot of business. And that was going on in a number of the cities actually mentioned in these seven verses. And, And in both Smyrna and Philadelphia, the Christians were also suffering at the hands of the Jews. That's why Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. In, uh, in verse 9, they were doing the devil's work, in other words, by, by attacking the Christians. But these Christians, they're standing firm. And, and it was the same in, in Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 8. So these people have kept Jesus' word and not denied him, chapter 3, verse 8. They've exhibited patient endurance in tough times, chapter 3, verse 9. And God has given them an open door of evangelistic opportunity, which they're taking, even though it's costing them. Chapter 3, verse 8. So there's lots of praise for these two churches. But what's the problem? Well, the problem in Smyrna, look, chapter 2, verse 10, is that they were afraid. (laughs) And so Jesus tells them not to be. Yes, they are going to face persecution. They're going to face tribulation. But it's only for a short time. I think that 10 days there in chapter 2, verse 10 is is almost certainly symbolic for just a short period of time. And and in Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 10, God is actually going to spare that church from from its most intense suffering. It's worth noting there, isn't it? In both churches, you've got churches working hard and suffering. But in one church, God allows the suffering for a short time. In another church, God spares them from the most intense suffering. That's a reminder to us, I think, friends, that God is the one who's in control. You know, he's in charge. He does what he sees fit to do. In other words, suffering is not random. And it's not that God is punishing the church by by making them suffer, but rather that he's using even evil that befalls them for his good purposes, for refining their faith, for enabling them to testify to him in the midst of suffering but in both churches God is with his people and will reward their faithfulness they will receive the crown of life chapter 2 verse 10 they will become a pillar in God's temple chapter 3 verse 12 so that's the praise and the problem in those two churches what's the point well friends I think for a start it tells us that the risen and reigning Lord Jesus will not miss anything Uh, Did you notice that repeated refrain? I know. I know your tribulation and poverty. I know your works. Friends, the Lord knows what's going on in his churches. He knows the hard work that's going on. He, He knows the hard work that you're doing. He sees it. He knows. And and I think, you know, I often think many people here, they work very hard for the Lord, often on top of kind of demanding work lives, family lives, and so on. They do so behind the scenes in in all kinds of ways that are rarely seen, rarely mentioned. You know, the Lord sees. He knows what you're doing for him. 
I know your hard work. I know your deeds, he says. So don't, don't be discouraged, friends, if you're, if you're kind of plugging away, you know, maybe without recognition, feeling unnoticed perhaps very often. The all-seeing Jesus knows and will reward you. But it's also worth noticing, isn't it, that the, the hardship is the norm in the Christian life. We're called to put self second and Christ first. And putting Christ first often comes with tough consequences, doesn't it? You know, for, for career, for relationships, for priorities, and, and so on. And these guys knew all about that. But they pressed on because they were assured of God's power and strength with them. For he is the first and the last. He's the one who rose from the dead to give new life. He can bring us through anything, you know, however tough, even death. And that's a great reason to trust him even in the toughest situations. Some of you will have heard of uh, a, a chap called Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, one of these churches here. And he was martyred for his faith just about 60 years after John wrote this letter. So I'm, I'm pretty sure Smyrna will have, uh, sorry, Polycarp will have heard these words in, in chapter 2, verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He will have read those words. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if those words weren't running through his mind as he was hauled into the stadium in Smyrna. And told by the Roman proconsul, swear and I will release you. Curse the Christ. And I think those words will have steeled him as he replied, 80 and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And Polycarp was burned to death that day for his faithfulness to King Jesus. But you see, he lived out Jesus' message here, didn't he? You're, you're tough but tired. You're hardworking but you're weary. But don't give up. You will be rewarded. I wonder whether that might be a message that we need to hear this morning. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Um, but come with me now, if you will, to um, Pergamum, churches of Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis. That's in this kind of central block of verses from, from chapter 2, verse 12, through to chapter 3, verse 6, where we see churches that are active but adulterous. Um, and let, let's ask the same questions again. What's the praise? What's the problem? What's the point? And when you look for praise about these churches, we can see there is some good in all three of these churches. So in Pergamum, uh, Jesus says, uh, chapter 2, verse 13, he knows where they live, where Satan's throne is, and yet they hold fast to Jesus' name. Uh, Pergamum was a, another key center of emperor worship of the time, which is probably why Jesus calls it where Satan has his throne. Um, it was a city that was very proud of its connections to the emperor, uh, where they didn't look very kindly on those who refused to comply with emperor worship. In fact, there'd already been one death. You can see that in verse 13, a local Christian called Antipas, um, who had already been killed for his faith. And yet the church was remaining faithful. They'd refused to buckle, even under the kind of the intense pressure that they were facing in their city. Uh, you can also see that Thyatira was home to um, uh, 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 a loving, welcoming, persevering 
church family that was evidently growing. So, so good stuff going on in Thyatira as well, look, chapter 2, verse 19. And also in Sardis as well, there are a few people, chapter 3, verse 4 says, who remain faithful. So there's some good in all of these churches, which I reckon is a bit sobering, <laughs> to be honest, because it means that on the outside, we might think that a church is doing well with lots of activity and maybe even some growth but that doesn't necessarily equate to spiritual health. And this church too has got no room for pride because Jesus actually moved very quickly from praise to problem. And we, we can see all three churches have very serious problems, in fact. And, and they're all problems that stem from compromise. Uh, for example, in Pergamum, look, the, the problem was false teaching and false living. Right, look at chapter 2 verse 14, you can see that there were people there who held to the teaching of Balaam. And, and you might remember the story of Balaam, it's, it's in the Old Testament, uh, in the book of Numbers, um, where we find the prophet Balaam tempting the people of Israel to worship other gods and tempting the men of Israel to sleep with other women who weren't their wives. So, so you've got false teaching and you've got sexual immorality, sexual sin. And, and in Thyatira, look, chapter 2, verse 20, it's the same kind of thing led by this woman uh, Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was almost certainly not her real name, because you, you'll remember Jezebel was another Old Testament character, someone who corrupted Israel and, and led God's people to turn away from God. So the name Jezebel, uh, it came to kind of epitomize, if you like, ungodly living and thinking, which is what, exactly what's going on in Thyatira. And it's important to see here, friends, that Jesus is not talking about what's going on in the culture in these places, but what's going on in the church, right? This false teaching and sexual immorality are happening in the church. And, and what seems to be going on is that the false teachers were basically encouraging the Christians to compromise with the pagan culture that was around them. In other words, they're urging the church to lower its doctrinal and moral standards, probably so that they would fit in with the culture more and so avoid persecution. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And friends, we recognize that cultural pressure all too well, don't we? And when there's so much pressure on you from the outside the church, it's very tempting to give into it inside the church and so become deeply compromised. But Jesus tells them, look, verse 16, verse 22, repent. Otherwise, he will come with his sword and act in judgment, verse 16. That's a very serious warning to these churches, isn't it? And if you look at the church in Sardis, um, they appear to have given up the fight altogether. Uh, church in Sardis had a great reputation. Chapter 3, verse 1, you have the reputation of being alive. This was a kind of, you know, lively church everyone wanted to come to. Oh, you're moving to Sardis? Oh, you should definitely go to this church. You know, oh, great worship, you know, lots to get involved in. But what does Jesus say of the church? He says you've got the reputation of being alive, but actually spiritually speaking, you're dead Chapter 3, verse 1. You're a church of spiritual zombies. You're dead men walking. Right? That's a scathing report, isn't it, from Jesus? And they too are called to repent. So we've seen the praise and the problem. 
What's the point? Well, friends, the, the point here, very simply, is that all three of these churches were so conformed to the culture around them that they'd become deeply compromised. And in the case of Sardis, to the point of having almost completely given up the battle. And that they were now just going with the cultural flow around them. Friends, we recognize that, don't we? We recognize the pressure only too well. Well, you know, everyone else is messing around sexually. You know, why, why shouldn't I? Or, 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 you know, everyone else is kind of drinking heavily at this, this party. Well, it can't be that bad, can it? Can't, can't I do that too? Or, or no one else really believes that Jesus is the exclusive way to God, do they? So does it really matter if I give up believing that too? Or, and, and I know this is the one that lots of us want to keep our heads down about at the moment, but friends, the big way in which the church is currently compromising with the prevailing culture is in the area of sexuality and gender, isn't it? And friends, of course, of course, it is of the utmost importance that Christ's church welcome and come alongside with compassion and real friendship those who genuinely struggle with their identity and their sexuality. Maybe that's you this morning. In which case, please know that you are loved by God. You are made in his image. and You are very welcome here. But friends, that must not involve us in either affirming what God denies or denying what God affirms. And the Bible is unambiguously clear that people do not choose their gender. God does. Jesus says it himself, Matthew 19, verse 4, when he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? In other words, we are who God has made us to be, not who we simply feel we are. No matter how strongly we feel it. And friends, that is good news for us, no matter how we feel. And it's actually the same thing with our sexuality as well. It is not ours to do with as we want. It's God's good gift to us for the purpose of expressing and deepening the unity of the marriage bond. Which from Genesis 1.24 through the whole of the rest of the Bible consistently teaches is between one man one woman which means friends that sex outside of that marriage bond is sexual sin according to the bible and in revelation here jesus rebukes the church in thyatira chapter 2 verse 21 for their tolerance of a teacher this jezebel character whose teaching is leading others into sexual sin And Jesus' judgment on her and any who follow her and don't repent, verse 22, extends to the church who are tolerating her, verse 20. And friends, I know this is so countercultural at the moment. But whilst we must be welcoming to everyone, we must not be affirming or tolerating of those who teach that which God includes as sin. And the risen and the reigning Lord Jesus says here, repent of this. He doesn't tell us to compromise with it or flirt with it, but to turn and run from it. So, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. 
to the churches. And then just quickly as we close, uh, look, uh, come, come with me to the church in Laodicea. This is in uh, the, the end of chapter 3 from verse 14 onwards. We didn't read it, but let, let's have a quick look at it together where we see a church that is rich but repulsive. Okay, we've, we've been looking for the praise, the problem and the point in these churches, haven't we? Notice here, when it comes to the praise, to that which is good here in, in the Laodicea church, he's got nothing really positive to say about the church at all. He goes straight to the problem, which is, verse 15, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, verse 16, and I will spit you out of my mouth. (laughs) Um, the, The church in Laodicea, in other words, is spiritually speaking like it's water. Okay, so Laodicea didn't have its own water supply, it was pumped in. And it was pumped in from two different places. There was cold water that was pumped in from the the mountain springs of of Colossae. There was hot water that was pumped in from the hot springs of Hierapolis. And when you put those two water sources together, what you got was this horrible, lukewarm water of Laodicea, which was renowned for making you gag when you drank it. (laughs) Um, In other words, it was good for nothing. You know, it wasn't hot enough to soothe you and heal you. It wasn't cold enough to refresh you. It was just kind of lukewarm and made you want to spit it out. And Jesus says that's a pretty good description of the church in Laodicea as well. Right? Useless, good for nothing, really. And you can see the heart of the problem in verse 17, where the church has become like the city around them, whose whose attitude is, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. See, Laodicea was a wealthy city, and and it was proud of it. You know, it's the kind of place where even the Christians would kind of love to swan into church with the kind of the Rolex watch and the the Armani suit and the Gucci bag or whatever it was, thinking they were the bee's knees. You see what Jesus says, you're tepid, you're lukewarm, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. That's what I think of you. You know, you talk a a great game, but you're half-hearted. You're more concerned with your appearance than the state of your heart. You think you're so cool, but actually, verse 17, you don't realize spiritually you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. And so he says to them, verse 18, that they need to buy from him spiritual gold, spiritual clothes, spiritual eye salve. In other words, it's, it's not the, the wealth and the clothes and the expensive eye treatments of the, of the city that you need. Don't trust in what the city's got to offer you, what it provides. But come to me, Jesus says, and let me give you spiritual riches and clothing and healing. This is Jesus standing at the door and knocking, isn't it? You know, he wants to come to that church and be welcomed in again. And so they need to repent of their their proud arrogance and their materialism and their self-reliance and and, and submit to him again. So so what's the point? Well, friends, the message for us here, surely, is that it's just as easy for, for us today, isn't it, to find ourselves trusting in everything else except the Lord Jesus. You know, we trust in our wealth, we trust in our status, we trust in our intellect or our abilities or our beauty or whatever it is but are we trusting in Jesus first and foremost because despite all those material things we have nothing spiritually without him as good as all his gifts are money health work abilities so on 
Friends, they must not numb us to our need of Christ because he's the only one who can deal with our spiritual poverty and blindness and nakedness. So stop with the self-reliance, says Jesus. Come to me. Buy from me what you really need. Well, the risen Lord Jesus has spoken, hasn't he? His reports, his assessment, been tough. But friends, he's not being tough here in order to make us feel guilty. Please know that this morning. But rather to drive us to the cross. For forgiveness when we get it wrong. For the Spirit's help and power to enable us to live his way. And friends, he'll grant us that forgiveness. He'll give us all the help and the power that we need. For he wants his churches to remain faithful to him in the midst of all the threats and the seductions that are all around us in the world. So friends, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let's pray. Father, these messages are a, uh, they're a strong report from the Lord Jesus. But would you please help us not to harden our hearts to them, but to hear them for what they are that which the spirit of the risen Lord Jesus is saying to the churches. And so please would we have ears to hear your voice in your word and hearts that are ready to repent where that is needed and the help of your spirit to keep following our master. All of this we pray in Jesus' name.